We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. The show's proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things that they're doing. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my engineering expert co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Lutruwita. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening, and on behalf of everyone pay my respects to elders past and present. So Sarah, with you, it's always an engineering special. Can you tell me a little bit more about our mystery expert guest today and the topic we'll be covering? So today's guest is Associate Professor Evan Franklin from the School of Engineering at Utah's. Evan's an electrical power engineer and we've invited him along today to discuss the future of electric vehicles. Sounds very exciting. Yeah, so we thought it would be good to do an episode on electric vehicles given the recent increases in fuel prices around the country, but also in terms of greater awareness in the community around climate change and sustainability. So interestingly, the transport sector contributes a fair bit to Australia's emissions. So some recent statistics that transport is Australia's third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions uh, with quite a high rate of growth. And Australian cars emit about the same amount of emissions as Queensland's entire electricity supply. Wow, that's a pretty good way to compare it. And also Australians are very wedded to their cars. So in terms of trying to shift behaviour, I think changing the vehicle rather than changing the way the person uses it is probably the way to go. Yeah, so um, welcome Evan. Good morning. We were wondering just to start if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into engineering and the kind of engineering work that you do. Yeah, sure. So how I got into engineering, I think when I was at school I just realised I wanted to see how things worked. Um, and that drove me into engineering and I've stayed here because I just love trying to improve the way things work. Um, and a lot of my teaching and research is all around renewable energy and how we can get more and more of that in the energy system. Um, and transport is one of those key opportunities that we have to improve the way we both drive and also the way our energy system works. So what do you enjoy most about your engineering work? Uh, I just love new things um, and All of my students and people that I've worked with in research, they know the sort of excitement of something new that's coming. (laughs) And electric vehicles is really something which, well, we talk about it being the future. Um, It's really here now. It's just that we're right at the start of it. And in some parts of the world, it's it's the present. But that that sort of excitement of something new and better um, and how it works and how we can make it work better is what really drives me. Does that include like, so you mentioned that you are interested in energy systems and that might be slightly different to, in some people's mind, like mine, to a vehicle, but is that because an electric vehicle is so closely linked to the way we supply and deliver energy across the country to actually power those vehicles then? Yeah, I, I sadly probably think of everything in terms of energy. <laughs> and so for me, transport, it's just, transport is, people just want to get from A to B really and they want to get there safely and conveniently and hopefully without too much expense. And transport is the method that we have of getting people from A to B. And to do that, you have to use energy. Traditional vehicles have worked really well for a long time, but they're actually pretty complicated bits of kit under the hood. Uh, and they aren't terribly energy efficient. So there are much better ways of doing that. Um, I, 
when I think of energy systems, I think of not just the electricity system, but I think of everything in factories where there's moving parts, there's things being made, there's heat, um, there's light in houses. Um, all of this requires energy and, and energy input. And where we get that energy from is, well, now we know is really um, a huge driver of what's happening in terms of climate change. And so finding those new opportunities to improve that energy system is where myself and a lot of other researchers are really interested in. So you're really interested in like the fundamentals of like energy in versus energy out, no matter where that's coming from or what way that's being applied or like the different contexts in which you can uh, look at that. Because Sarah and I have done a number of episodes now on renewable energy in particular, but how do you draw the line on where you, what you look at? Because it could be everywhere and anything when you start trying to improve the way that we're doing things most efficiently for the amount of energy it costs to achieve an outcome. Yeah, it's hard to draw the line. So in my in most of my research, I draw the line around electrical energy systems, but I certainly have a much broader view of energy systems. And there's one I'd encourage listeners to go and look at these Sankey diagrams that the International Energy Agency produces. And they're, they're beautiful coloured diagrams that show all of the energy input for the whole world, or you can do it for Australia or for Tasmania, and where all of that energy goes. And if you look at that, you see where we are now in the world and Australia is we get most of our energy from fossil fuels still. Despite all of the massive changes in the last 10, 20 years, we still get the vast majority from fossil fuels. And most of it goes to transport, industry, to commercial and residential um, buildings. And you can see where we want to go is we want to get it all from renewables and we know where it's going to end up <laughs> in buildings and houses and cars and trucks um, and the number of changes we have to make to get there is just still massive. There's uh, so much scope for innovation and for um, new ideas in this space. So the listeners can't tell but I can see your face light up there when you're talking <laughs> about going from the we know what we want to achieve which is yep. people having safe clean energy delivered to their home versus what we deliver now and you're like there's so much to do in between is there that really the bit that really gets you excited and fired up of like well what's the best way for us to solve that part of the problem yeah absolutely there's there are so many things we need to do um i could spend 10 lifetimes <laughs> sort of working on all of these problems um and interestingly we're doing this podcast from tasmania so tasmania in my view is already quite a long way down that path of we we've already can have a lot of our end uses relying on electricity which is not like the rest of the world transport certainly not one of them <laughs> yet um, and we get a lot of our energy input from renewables um, it's largely by good fortune and the resources we have but that means that in tasmania there's some opportunities to do things and show the rest of the world how we should do these things you're listening to that's what i call science what a great way to start the show stick with us we'll be talking more to evan about electrical vehicles You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about electric vehicles with our expert guest, Evan Franklin. So in this next segment, Evan, we want to talk a lot more in depth about electric vehicles and some of the opportunities and challenges that this technology provides. But to begin with, could you give our listeners a bit of an idea about what an electric vehicle actually is and how this is different from a fuel-based vehicle? Uh, definitely. Let's, let's start with the fuel-based vehicle. So we refer to it as an internal combustion engine. It puts, well, you put fuel into your car, stores it in a tank, and then you burn little bits of it at a time, which makes lots of pistons move, and then some shafts rotate, and then eventually wheels turn, and that's what you want. If you convert that to an electric vehicle, you replace 
all of that fuel that you have to put in, in terms of liquid fuel, petrol or diesel, you replace almost all of those moving parts and replace it with a piece of, we call it power electronics. So it's electronics like you would have in your phone, but a lot bigger, to control the electrical flow of power. And then you might have one or two or even up to four electric motors which directly drive either the front or the rear or all four wheels. So the input is electricity and it's got to be stored somewhere and in most electric vehicles you'll have a a number of batteries um, where you store that um, energy. It's currently lithium-ion technology and likely to be for quite a long time. And then motors which are really high efficiency. So most of the energy you put in in a petrol vehicle ends up as heat. When you when you burn stuff, it's very hard to get efficiently get a lot of that energy that that fuel, like petrol, contains into mechanical or motion. So maybe 25% at, at best for a petrol vehicle is turned into motion on the road. Um, for an electric vehicle, you're probably looking at um, in the order of 85-90% of the energy you put in ending up on the road. So that's a good thing to start with. So, Evan, I've always wondered, you mentioned there that lithium-ion batteries are used in electric vehicles. I've always wondered how does that come into effect within a car? Because, you know, there's a lot of challenges that some of our listeners may be aware of. But when we start talking about sustainable energy, like solar power or electrical vehicles, we often end up talking about battery storage because you need to have a way to wait until you want to use the the energy. How does that play out within electric cars? I've got to say, I don't know very much about that. Yeah, I think batteries are really the the weakest link, if you like, in an electric vehicle. Um, And there's been a lot of research and development focus, and there still will be, on the technology, both in terms of trying to reduce the cost and increase the efficiency of those batteries, but also the longevity and the full life cycle for those batteries. So in an electric vehicle, the more batteries you put in the car, the heavier the car is. They're quite a a heavy component of the car. The more batteries you put in, the longer you can drive that car before or between charging. But um, the heavier it is, the more costly it is to, to purchase and to manufacture. The dominant technology is lithium-ion technology, and there's lots of different chemistries within lithium-ion technology. But there's also a lot of work being done on some other types of um, battery technologies, which may or may not come to fruition commercially. And there's also a lot of work on end-of-life of batteries, so both extending the life of batteries out. Um, typically, if you buy an electric vehicle now, the batteries are probably going to last in the order of 8 to 10 years and most cars last for a long, lot longer than that. And so the anticipation is that you will have to replace those batteries uh, once or twice during the life of the vehicle. Um, so there's work being done on stretching that out as long as possible, but also on um, recycling that material and working out how to increase the full life cycle um, efficiency of batteries and environmental effects of batteries. Yeah, that's a really interesting area. And I was quite surprised there when you said that the current life cycle is 8 to 10 years, because it's like, well, surely it's probably like... 15 or something but no that makes sense that you'd have to replace it I suppose we're kind of familiar with that now I can think that I've had to replace my car battery that currently is in my fuel guzzler of a Subaru Forester Um, but yeah it's interesting to see that there's so much work going on like lots of the different aspects to support electrical vehicle use in the long term yeah absolutely Uh, so you've talked there about how lithium-ion battery technology is one of the potential barriers I guess to more widespread adoption of electric vehicles what are some of the other barriers I think just inertia in terms of, and I don't mean in a science sense, (laughs) but in a society sense, um, people are not used to electric vehicles. They're very um, comfortable and well-adjusted to uh, petrol vehicles, and they're used to going filling up with petrol. They know that there's petrol stations all around the country and the state, and they can fill up whenever they need to. There's this concept, which I'm sure you've heard of with electric vehicles, which is range anxiety, 
being talked about less and less now uh, that people are getting used to having electric vehicles but the idea that if you're driving a long distance and you need to find somewhere to fill up to top up your batteries um, that there there isn't somewhere nearby that you can go um, so that's a barrier and that's one that I think um, governments all around the world are trying to address which is to to roll out a network of charges so that you can take a car long distance and charge it up um, I think Probably, though, the biggest barrier for most people is simply the cost at the moment. So the cost of a, an electric vehicle, upfront cost, I should say, of an electric vehicle um, compared to a similar size capacity passenger vehicle that's um, internal combustion engine is quite high. The cost difference is certainly coming down, but um, if people have got limited funds and they want to upgrade their, or replace their car, they will have to spend more on a, an electric vehicle. The other side of the equation, which um, we haven't worked out a way to I guess resolve for people is the cost of running an electric vehicle is a lot lower. You know, now we're driving around, we're filling up at over $2 a litre um, with petrol. The equivalent cost to get the same distance out of an uh, electric vehicle is probably a, a quarter or a fifth of that cost. So if people could factor in over the life of their vehicle the cost of running it into their decision making, it would make people more likely to choose an electric vehicle. But we don't really have a system where where people make decisions on that basis usually. I have a bit of a left field question, Evan, so feel free to disregard it, but I'm always really interested in how human behaviour impacts like technological advancements or changes in healthcare or energy use, whatever it is. A lot of people buy their vehicles secondhand and I like I don't know the breakdown of first like brand new vehicle buyers versus secondhand. How much do you think like incentive programs or things like that might put an impetus on people in the next like five to ten years to actually switch to an electric vehicle in their next vehicle purchase? Yeah, I think um, incentive programs for any new technology that's more costly but has a pathway to lower cost, which is what electric vehicles certainly sit within that category are good because they, they get the market to grow, which dri helps drive down those costs, but they also get people familiar with the technology. Until people become familiar with the technology, they're not likely to even think of putting that in their matrix of possible vehicles they might purchase, for example. There's a, and I think that human nature, uh, it's understandable to not really want to rush into something new that you don't know yet, because there's not just the potential emissions benefits and the increased efficiency there's the driving experience which i think is what I, is what is going to get a lot of people over the line driving an electric vehicle is is really fun they're really really responsive um, and so people once they realize that you know they, they start looking at them as a, a next purchase so i do think incentives are important and in australia we haven't really had very good incentives for electric vehicles. Um, economics is going to end up driving it this way anyway. People will just 10 years time will just be buying electric vehicles. I think what governments can do is get us ready for that, get the infrastructure ready and start getting people to change their buying behaviour and their preferences. Okay, listeners, stick with us for part three. We'll be talking more about how the future of electric vehicles looks in Tasmania and beyond. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about electric vehicles. My name is Sarah Lydon, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Evan Franklin. So in the last segment, Evan, you were telling us a lot about electric vehicles and also about some of the challenges and barriers to implementation of the technology. If we now take a bit of a shift in focus to opportunities 
and thinking about Tasmania and the, I guess, unique Tasmanian power system. What are some of the opportunities that exist for Tasmania with respect to electric vehicles? Yeah, I think Tasmania is in a really good position to have high electric vehicle uptake. And there's a few reasons for that. So one, it's pretty small and compact. Uh, There aren't that many common driving routes that you have to put charging stations on. Um, You know, if you have a car that can drive four or 500 kilometres, there's there's not that many parts of the state that you can get to (laughs) in that distance. We also have sort of blessed with a renewable energy-based power system, um, which means that we have the opportunity to electrify transport and do it in a really green way more easily than other parts of the world um, can do. Other parts of Australia, for example, largely based on still coal and gas, busily trying to replace those as it is to replace those re- with renewables. Adding electric vehicles means you need to add more renewables. Well, Tasmania is in a position where we're 100% renewables. We could add more renewables reasonably easily. And our power system, all of those hydro storage um, reservoirs that you drive past, if you if you are driving around the state, they're all basically like a big battery. They give the system operator, which is Hydro Tasmania here, the opportunity to generate energy more easily when it's needed and store energy in those reservoirs when it's not. And so uh, one of the things with electric vehicles that people worry about is, first of all, extra energy will be needed to charge those up. It's got to come from somewhere. Um, But also, when will it need to be charged up and how does the power system manage that? And so Tasmania is in a position where we, we can do that reasonably easily. We can hold water back in those reservoirs and not generate um, when it's not being required and then put more water through um, when there's a whole lot of electric vehicles needing to be charged. But um, here's the thing, Sarah, that I think is um, is a misconception among most people in Tasmania. That is, we're a, we are currently 100% renewables. We've got a lot of wind. Um, we've got a lot of hydroelectricity that's being generated. And so if we convert our transport fleet to electric, it will be also green and renewable. That's not quite the case uh, because at the moment we have enough energy generation, electricity generation for what we currently use. If we add electric vehicles, um, it adds quite a significant load if we all convert it um, to the power system and we've got to source that energy from somewhere else. What I would say to the state government, for example, is if you want to promote rollout of electric transport in Tasmania, it's a great idea for Tasmania. We have a already have a leg up, we've got an advantage. But what you also have to do is grow the new generation of renewable energy at the same rate that you electrify transport. And then what I'd say even more to the householder, and this is this becomes almost a no-brainer if you're going to buy an electric vehicle, you need to get the energy from somewhere. If you don't already have solar panels on the roof, whack some up there so that you can supply your own electric vehicle with energy. And that make it the most cheap way to travel if you can do that yourself. I have a potentially controversial question about that. So Tasmania has been lauded as the battery of the nation in the past and lots of interest in uh, providing links so that we can supply renewable energy sources to um, Victoria. Would an increased demand in Tasmania through electric vehicles and things like that maybe change how our role in terms of a national player in the energy market could change? Like I, I love the idea personally of democratising energy production and that every household has some solar panels and that's incentivised 
um, and would love to see like a renewable energy package for every homeowner. Um, I think in somewhere the rental markets as controversial and complex as uh, Hobart and greater areas of Tasmania now. But how does that, um, from a policy making and the asset that Tasmania has access to of hydro, do you think that that's a really complex area in terms of how we really look at what's in the best interests of Tasmania versus how we scale up renewable energy nationwide? It is really complex and it's a huge issue and a discussion that I think we're not really having much in Tasmania. If So the Tasmanian government and the utilities certainly want to build a bigger cable between Tasmania and Victoria and in many respects I think that's a really good idea but we're not well, not necessarily thinking about what is the best way forward for Tasmania. So we certainly could generate more renewable energy here and we could use it here. Uh, the plan currently is to is to be better connected to Victoria to help support the uh, Victorian and New South Wales and South Australian economies to transition to renewables. And I think on the whole, that's a really good idea. Yeah, there's a bit of tension between, well, if we do that um, and we also add lots of extra load through transport, other new industries in Tasmania, do the two really sort of sit side by side well? Um, I don't really have a definite answer on that. But How great would it be, though, if by providing energy to the other states, the Tasmanian taxpayers receiving more money in their pocket to invest in households, renewable energy sources for themselves? Just going to throw that one out yeah. there on the airwaves. Yeah, and so this is the, <laughs> um, this is the biggest sticking point on the new interconnect, uh, which is getting a bit off the topic of electric vehicles, <laughs> but it's an interesting one. So it's going to cost a lot of money to build that. And without almost without doubt, all of the modelling shows that it will benefit um, customers through lower electricity costs, but mostly in Victoria, in New South Wales, even as far as Queensland and South Australia. Someone has to pay for that cable and no one, I don't think anyone in Tasmania thinks that people in Tasmania should pay for it. But then again, people in Queensland and New South Wales don't. There's no system or sort of um, mechanism in place at the moment where they would pay for that infrastructure to help make electricity prices cheaper. So it's an ongoing discussion and it is no doubt the biggest sticking point for this project. I think it's such an interesting point where it sounds so, like I think it kind of speaks to the uptake of electrical vehicles where it sounds so pragmatic and easy at first glance of like, yeah, of course we would do that. But then when you actually work through all the infrastructure and the processes and the the way those things play out, you need such multidisciplinary teams coming together to really be like, yeah. well, how does this, when we change one variable, how does that change everything really? Yes. We've had a bit of a focus on sort of more passenger electric vehicle kind of technologies, but sort of what other opportunities are there for us to, I guess, decarbonise the transport sector? So thinking about it more broadly in terms of buses and ferries and trucks transporting food around the place in addition to passenger vehicles. Yeah. Yep, it's a really good question because um, battery electric vehicles probably still going to have a, an upper limit to the, the range that they can travel between charging. And also um, because those batteries are quite heavy, it starts to not make sense to go to great big trucks for long distance haulage, just the amount of batteries you have to have in there. And those drivers will drive for, you know, with teams of drivers for, for tens of hours at a time. Um, and s the other transport um, opportunity that seems like batteries are not likely to be suitable for is uh, maritime transport, shipping, and also air travel. Um, and so the world has been looking for alternative fuels that are renewable fuels for a number of years. And I think the, the thing that everyone is excited about, uh, myself included, is now um, hydrogen as an energy carrier. Uh, we're all familiar with hydrogen. It's part of the key part of the, the water molecule. 
and if you use renewable electricity, you can split that and get hydrogen and oxygen gas. And then the hydrogen in various forms, either liquefied or compressed or converted to another liquid fuel like ammonia or methanol can then be used in a number of different ways and potentially for long distance um, transport, uh, marine transport, air travel, uh, also passenger vehicles as well. Um, there's, there are a couple of passenger vehicles based on hydrogen being converted back to electricity and then running electric motors again. So they're actually electric vehicles but the fuel that you put in is hydrogen or, um, or ammonia or methanol in a big ship for example. So I think there again is a huge opportunity to um, to make that conversion from the fossil fuel inputs to um, what we actually need at the end being renewables um, and you have to build a lot more renewable energy to create all that hydrogen so there's again massive opportunities in the electrical power system space. Can I ask a really dumb question? How do we know hydrogen is like cleaner and more sustainable? than what we're already doing because to me it sounds like this is like a really big process into separating that molecule and doing that which sounds quite intensive yep. so for me I'm like is that actually better than what we're currently doing yeah and so this is um, there's a lot of being work being done on this at the moment around how you certify certify hydrogen and where it came from because it's not it's not crystal clear there are actually a couple of different ways of making hydrogen um, and the one that's 99% of the market now that people use hydrogen now for chemical processes um, for making fertilisers, and 99% of hydrogen that is produced is produced from natural gas, from methane, um, and it's um, it's a steam reforming process. It's referred to. It basically splits the methane molecule into hydrogen and carbon dioxide. Um, and unless you do something to capture and store that carbon dioxide, it's a reasonably um, emissions intensive process. And then at the other end of the spectrum. Um, you've got hydrogen produced from renewable energy, renewable electricity, splitting water, and you could um, certainly claim that that is green, uh, it's zero emissions, but electricity systems at the moment are not all based on renewables, except for Tasmania's as it happens. And so if an electricity system has a mix of renewables and burning coal and gas to create hydrogen, um, it's quite hard to put your finger on it and say that is from this source of energy. And so Australian government and other governments around the world are trying to work out a standardised certification process so that people, when they go and buy hydrogen, they know the source of it. And yeah, that's a really good answer. Yeah. Thank you. Because, I don't know, I always wonder sometimes when we start innovating and moving to new things, can we inadvertently be actually exacerbating things? Because, I mean, that's what happened with the Industrial Revolution, right? We, we actually meant to be making things like so much better and then we're like, ooh, we're kind of killing the environment. Yes. Um, <laughs> with all of this refinement. I think that's all we've got time for you today. Thanks so much, Evan. You've been a great guest. Thanks so much, Sarah, for being a wonderful co-host and always bringing us exciting engineering content. Until next time, listeners, thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. You can find our engineering content on thatscience.org by going to the episodes and searching Sarah's name, and you'll be able to find all of the episodes that she's produced with us. Until next time, my name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank Sarah Lydon and our expert guest, Evan Franklin. Goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. 
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.